Hello, I am Richard Long, Executive Director of the Learning First Alliance. LFA is a partnership of leading education organizations representing more than 10 million members dedicated to improving student learning in America's public schools. We share examples of success, encourage collaboration, and work towards the continual and long-term improvement of public education based on solid research. Our guest today is Dr. Daryl Howard, a Specialist in Equity Initiative Unit Professional with the Montgomery County Public Schools in Maryland. Is the author of books and articles on equity, including Complex People, Insights at the Intersection of Black Culture and the American Social Life. However, he's more than just that book. He has been an equity instructional specialist whose work and research interests include race and cultural proficiency, social-emotional learning, and the triumphs and challenges of African-American male students. As chair of Maryland State Department Education's Advisory Council on Equity and Excellence for Black Boys, he researches and recommends policy and practice to disrupt harmful narratives, decrease disproportionality, and elevate achievement. So both the pluses and the minuses. Howard is instrumental in the work of building our Network of Diversity Bond Project, where he leads initiatives focused on recruitment, development, and retention of male educators of color, as well as empowerment of underserved male students. Howard lectures on the topics of race, sociology, and education at McDaniel and Prince George's Community College, and is a cited author. Lastly, Howard is part of the NEA Foundation's Educators Table. The program seeks to uplift the voices of outstanding educators on key issues, including equity, educational justice, workforce diversity, and more. You can follow him across social media at Daryl Howard, PhD. Dr. Howard, thank you for taking the time today. But let's get to know you a little bit. What brought you to being focused on equity and working to expand the number of students of color who become teachers? All right. Thank you, Rich, for that introduction. And I guess to speak to your question, I got into the work of race and equity quite some time ago. The majority of my experiences in K-12 through education were through the position of a school counselor. But all throughout that time, I always had a focus on young men who had similar experiences that I did in my K through 12 education. In fact, going back to the late nineties, I remember my master's thesis was on culturally responsive strategies and techniques for counseling African-American boys. So we're talking about over 20 years, I've kind of been interested in just understanding the disproportionality that exists in, in a number of things that should be concerning to us as educators. Disproportionality around academics, meaning standardized testing, meaning academic performance, meaning graduation rates, meaning college acceptances, but then also disproportionality around detentions, referrals, suspensions, expulsions, and how students can be the highest in areas that are negative, but the lowest in the areas in which we need them to be positive. So I've always just had curiosities around that. And part of my work is trying to reduce those gaps that exist because they contribute to what we know as quote unquote, the achievement gap and or the school to prison pipeline. So that I, I see that as part of my life's work, not just something I do from nine to five. And that's kind of why I think that 
one of the solutions to that disproportionality would be to have more male educators of color in our schools um, because we have growing and increasingly diverse society that we live in and we need our workforce to reflect that diversity. Many years I, I worked as a counselor in Montgomery County. This goes back to, we used candlelight back then. The challenges we faced that you talk about have been with us for a very long time. Yet, how would you have reached out to me as, as a white middle-class back then kid trying to make a difference uh, with the African-American population of today in Montgomery County? So it's interesting you ask that. So in my full-time job, I do a lot of work around helping educators to better understand who they are as racial and cultural beings. So recognizing one's biases, recognizing how one is socialized to see the world, and just being able to think through those things as you interact with people who may have different experiences. I'm also thinking about how to help educators to learn more about the students that they serve. So whether they are African-American, whether they are Asian-American, whether they are Native American, Indigenous, whether they're LGBTQ+, I'm always trying to put educators in spaces that, that stretch them to learn more about those students who have had different experiences. And then lastly, once you have that knowledge and understanding of yourself, you have a, a better understanding of the students that you're serving, you can then create spaces where everybody feels like they belong. So if every teacher has 25 students, that's 26 different experiences that are in that classroom. So how do you ensure that everybody feels included? How do you make sure everybody feels like they belong um, and nobody feels othered or marginalized in that space that you all share? It's not e easy but it is necessary work for those students who, in order to know what you want to teach them, they have to know that you care. So how do you demonstrate that every single day? And that becomes part of the, the work of an educator. It's not just about being good in, um, I have great math content. Nobody cares about your math content until they know that you have some level of connection with them in that classroom space. Do you think it's it's possible that in such a high percentage of our current workforce is a white female? What sort of experiences have you had in trying to communicate and, and help essentially that community to bridge to the community that they're trying to serve? Yeah. I often refer to a book by uh, Chance and Tolson, and the, and the quote says, African-American and Latino boys will spend the majority of their K-12 through experience under cross-cultural and cross-gender instruction and supervision. So essentially, they are being led and instructed by someone who is not from their same racial cultural nor do they understand some of the biological things that may be um, happening for them as, as, as boys who are growing into young men. There's differences there. So there's gaps that are going to be part of that instruction that is taking place. As you said, we, in, in our district, we have 80%, well, state, state of Maryland, we have 80% of our teachers are women. And as you suggested, many of them are, are white women. So how do we teach educators to, again, think about their own experience, how to think about the experiences of their students, and then create that space where they all belong? 
if we were to talk about this in terms of like biology, I think our schools are heavy in the area of verbal expression and less in the area of physical, spatial reasoning and understanding. So how do you move from like a theoretical abstract type of learning environment to something that's more tactile? Or how do you move from like the didactic to the experiential? And for many folks, that would be like telling them that the world is flat because it's such a paradigm shift. But many male learners, and and I'm not being exclusive to male learners, and I'm not saying that it's hardwired that male learners are like this, but many male learners may be physical, spatial learners, and there's not a lot of room for that in the way education is currently constructed. Well, well, certainly the the data at the early years uh, supports that basis that we've known for years that girls are uh, faster verbally learners than, than males. I can't help but think we're, we're entering the third year of dealing with the variant problems, uncertainties that COVID has brought to our schools. And what you suggest is that the virtual learning environment, the hybrid learning environment, is actually not going to be good for boys. It's terrible for boys. I'm, I'm laughing because I, I wrote, so I have three daughters. So just to give you a full context, right? So I'm living, I'm living with three daughters during a pandemic and my wife and I were very concerned about what does this mean? Like what, like they can't engage with their friends the way they used to. They there's, they're stuck at home. They're transitioning to this Zoom, Google Meets world, which was foreign to all of us at that time. But I was also very curious about my friends who were raising boys. I did a questionnaire with them, probably about a dozen friends who were raising boys. And I ended up writing an article about it that talked about the ways in which boys may be engaging or not engaging in this virtual world. A lot of times boys need to be in a space where they have a mirror or reflection of what growth looks like. You have to measure up against someone else to see if you are moving towards that set space that you want to be in. Just a quick example, I, I asked one of the parents, what do you do to get your boy to exercise? He said, I send him outside. He loves basketball. Every single day, I send him outside to get his exercise. And then after about three weeks, he came back in. She said, you're back in early. What are you, what are you, what are you doing? He said, mom, I'm tired of playing against myself. And to me, that was like, that was so profound um, that he wasn't able to measure his growth in whether that was basketball, whether it's just being competitive or whether it's just a number of different things he was trying to measure up against his peers, but the peers weren't there. And so some of that wasn't available. Some of that's not available in virtual spaces. So I would argue that, yes, boys probably had a tougher time with virtual learning than our girls did. This reminds me, I worked with the International Reading Association for a number of years. One of our presidents, was Dorothy Strickland, who's since passed, dot an extraordinary educator. And she raised two boys, three boys, was always shocked to be sitting around the table and how the boys would just routinely say, Oh yeah, so-and-so is better than I am at this. And she has a woman, a girl, that was an anathema to be comparing like that. But she learned in, in the culture of boys that we talk about that. It, yeah, it's a sunny day. It's a cloudy day. He's faster. I'm quicker. And, and these kinds of things, you're right. It, 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 indeed. Indeed. The social context of that is, is vital. 
Uh, yeah. Yeah. So now we have this increasing gap because we had no choice, either uh, virtual learning or none at all. And kids are now coming back to school. What are you seeing about with the kids who weren't reaching? And I do want to get to this, the affirmative message you have. So what I observed in a number of different spaces where uh, we're hearing about and, and engaging with students is that there was some re-socialization processes that had to kind of take place. I would say probably throughout the entire first semester, there were a number of students who going and sitting in a class for a block period of 90 minutes in a school and, and trying to pay attention quietly is different than laying on your bed in your pajamas with your video turned off, but still listening is just different. Following rules and, and going to the bathroom only because you, you've you asked for permission versus you just get up and you're at home and I want a snack or I need to use the restroom. Like you just did those things. So there was a level of autonomy within the learning when at home versus some of the structure and constraints that may exist within the schoolhouse that I think there, there had to be a, a process of kind of a reacclimation, if you will, to, to that learning environment. I've heard a lot of positive things since the turn of the new year that students are kind of like settling in now to how school used to, used to operate, but there are still pieces of that virtual e-learning community that still is part of the in-person experience, which is good. So I think we're kind of resetting and, and I'm curious to see what educators feel they have learned though. That's probably my greatest curiosity. After this period of time, and now we're moving into spring, people are released to move, taking their masks down, people are vaccinated. People, what have you learned about teaching students that you can now take into next year to be prepared for whatever comes our way. So that's, that's kind of like something that's just floating around in my head so that we can get ahead of whatever situations come. I think we realize now that learning doesn't have to look one way. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting challenge though. How do we lead what was so positive about the idea that a student is learning how to learn in an autonomous fashion is a very mm -hmm. important and powerful statement. And yet mm -hmm. you walk back into school and the bodily functions are no longer yours to, to manage. Yeah. Sit down, take off your hat. Don't talk. Keep your desk on this little piece of tape. Like all of these rules and structures now have we have to abide by. So that was tough for students, I believe. Yeah, I, I, I mean, just the way you explain it. Yeah, of course, it's tough. Uh, yeah, a really good observation. I have talked, and it's and I know you have too about people who have done pretty well in this environment. That some schools have used project learning, and uh, the students have worked very quickly instead of spending six hours and. In a Zoom classroom, we'll spend two hours a day to get the routine stuff out of the way so they can do interesting. What are you saying that is on the affirmative side? Well, let me say this because it's just, just on the top of my head right now. Sure. So with our nonprofit organization, The Bond Project, in May, we have a professional learning academy every single spring. And we actually theme this one, building a new, taking what we've learned 
to establish equitable outcomes. So we wanted to create a space to really talk about that question that you just asked me. What is it that folks have learned? What are folks doing in their classes? How are they, how are they setting up the environment of their classroom? And when students walk into that space, what are they thinking? What are they feeling? How are they making different instructional moves? Things that they may have done virtually, how are they now doing it real time? And how are they scaffolding information and bridging, of course, electronic devices and what they're expecting them to do in class? How are they doing that seamlessly? How are they exploring new ways of looking at the curriculum? I think it is a big part of what many educators are seeking to do coming out of the pandemic. And quite frankly, I'm sure you're no, you're no stranger to the understanding that many aspects of curriculum, aspects of history, aspects of looking at the world are under scrutiny from a number of different angles. And some teachers are saying, you know what, there's a larger, broader history that needs to be explored. And some folks are still sitting in feeling confined and locked into a curriculum because they don't want to deviate from it and feel as though there's consequences for that. But I think other teachers are probably thinking about how do we assess students to know what they know? Because of course, on Friday, you can give your standard 10 question, multiple choice, you know, test every single week because that's easy for you to do. That was easy. But now, do you do something project-based? Do you do a oral presentation? Do you do something that is geared towards your verbally expressive learners who can write an essay to demonstrate what they understand? So how are we meeting the needs of those and getting variety in the way we assess our students? So I think there's a number of things that are being looked at, but I haven't seen any research. I haven't seen any articles that say, hey, these are the 10 things that you need to be thinking about as an educator in 2022. I haven't seen that yet. Maybe that's something that I should try to write. It, it's something that I think a lot of people would benefit from. Like, what are the five, the 10 top things that you need to be thinking about to be an educator in 2022? Well, one of the things you touched on, which I think is something that folks can appreciate, is we've had now contrast between three conditions in the classroom, a hybrid, and totally virtual. What did you like about one? And how can we get it into the other? Because that is where we then are teaching and discovering how each one of us learns, which is how you started this discussion. It's about personalization, it's about understanding. And here you talk very eloquently about how we can use these experiences to push these notions with, not at, but with. Rich, I guess what I would say, the, the way of framing it is, so technology's not going anywhere. And we as human beings, we're not going anywhere. But the kids that we're dealing with, the generation of students that we're dealing with, they've never been without a device. So we think that learning is going to take place in environments that do not have any of those elements. We're going to struggle. So we have to get out of this kind of like either or thinking like there's one specific model that's going to work. And I think we have to figure out the way to bridge all of those different platforms we've been on face-to-face, -face, as you said, virtual, and then the hybrid. How do we manage all of that? This is the direction we need to go in. So both and opposed to either or. 
Well, this has been fascinating. Daryl Power of Montgomery County Public Schools. And to repeat, you can follow him across his social media at Daryl Howard. PhD, and that is something I'm going to do. In closing, is there any any words you want to leave with us? I would probably leave with maybe one of the points that I kind of alluded to earlier. In specific, I, so I did a webinar this past Saturday on reaching and teaching Black boys, and I was asked by the National Association of Elementary School Principals to write a 600-word piece on principles, because you and I talked about principles versus practices. Mm -hmm. And they asked me, what would be three principles you want educators to know? And so I don't think that this only applies to Blackboard, but I certainly think it could apply to to, to many of your students. And I, but the principles I came up with were, number one, we have to learn about our biases and we have to think differently. That's the first thing we have to do. The second thing that we have to do is that we have to leverage how our boys or slash students learn, and then we instruct differently. And then the last principle was, we love our students like they're our own, and then we engage them differently. And I think if we can follow that last principle and love them like they're our own children, we'll never fail. We'll never give up on them. We'll never lower expectations. We'll always give them another chance. We'll always want the best for them. And we'll always see to it that they get the best of us. So I'll just leave it there with my approach and my thinking around how educators need to think, instruct, and engage with their students. I want to thank you for sharing that with us. This has been an excellent discussion. I've learned a great deal, and I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you.